Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to Act Two of the Jumbanathan Lecture with Lionel Shriver. My name is Monica Wilkie, and I'm a policy analyst at the Centre for Independent Studies in the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society program. It's so fantastic that all of you came out this evening to see so many new faces as well as old friends. It's absolutely fantastic. And thank you as well to everyone who sent in your questions. We're going to be getting to those shortly. But firstly, Lionel, as Tom mentioned, you were on Q&A last night. Mm -hmm. How did you cope with Q&A? <laughs> <laughs> um, fine. <laughs> uh, I, I made sure not to spend very long swatting up on the subjects that we didn't even end up talking about. Um, and I thought that the tenor of the conversation was, um, was civilized, and I liked that. And it was interesting because ordinarily I would think a politics show would thrive on conflict and battle, but I think I'm sick of it. I'm sick of conflict and battle. We have enough of it. And I enjoyed the fact that everyone on that panel treated each other decently, let each other finish their sentences. And incredibly, when we went back to the green room, we were all still on speaking terms. <laughs> just, to, just to stick with Q&A for a moment, because I issue that kept being brought up when you were talking about cultural appropriation was that we're not saying you can't write about characters that are a different race. You just have to do it sensitively. How do you write a character sensitively? Well, of course, the taboo doesn't, doesn't prescribe sensitive sensitivity. It, it prescribes permission, which is impossible to get. Um, and generally discourages writers from, from venturing into the minds of people that they supposedly, I, I guess, can't conceivably understand. Um, and and it, it keeps people, you, you're not supposed to steal experience that doesn't belong to you. So I think that's an abridgment of what the taboo is all about. Um, and besides which, sensitivity is in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, in this environment, you cannot get sensitive enough. And it's been interesting to watch in the uh, young adult fiction area that the a number of the writers who, who have um, become uh, either famous or notorious, depending on whether you are one of their victims, um, for uh, persecuting other young adult fiction writers for uh, violations of the progressive code. Uh, these have been some of the same people who have been caught out violating the progressive code and have, have um, basically bit their own bums. And it's been hard not to take a certain gleeful satisfaction in watching them uh, having, uh, having been uh, taken down by their own methods and, and by their own sensitivity. <laughs> so, uh, 
sensitivity is, is no defense. Uh, you can try terribly hard to, um, to write characters of, a, say, a different race the way you think they want to be written about, but uh, you're never going to do it right. If somebody's looking to catch you out, they always will. Um, and that's, that just brings us around to the fact that the very ambition to try to you know, make people happy was just a, it's, it's a losing proposition. And furthermore, the, the notion of writing a novel, trying to satisfy a whole, a spectacularly large array of special interest groups, well, that's a losing proposition, too. It's not why people should be writing novels. It's certainly not the reason that I read them. And um, so the, the whole thing of, of, of simply you know, being determinedly sensitive it's a waste of time, it's not even going to work, and it's certainly not going to end up making a decent book. On the issue of people being caught out, someone wrote in a question and wanted to know, is this in a way how cultural appropriation and sensitivity readers will come to an end? If everyone just keeps getting caught out for transgressions, it'll in a way wipe the slate clean eventually? Oh, well, I mean, I do kind of like the notion of just putting all of these uh, hard left uh, fascists in a room and closing the door. <laughs> I mean, you'd come back and 24 hours later and there'd just be this little puddle. <laughs> Job done. <laughs> Well, uh, um, I don't know if we can arrange that, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> Just as well, on the, um, you've, you brought up sensitivity readers. Do you just want to briefly describe for those who don't know maybe what a sensitivity reader's job actually is? Because I was flabbergasted when I found out what they actually do. I gather there's a whole range of different kinds of sensitivity readers. Um, the kind you would predict, you know, uh, black or Native American or Muslim. Um, but they even have sensitivity readers for people with terminal illnesses, though I guess those people have to be replaced on a regular basis. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> um, and they go through manuscripts looking for anything that might might be offensive to these communities. And I'm sure they always find them, because that's, that's the nature of the job. If you are looking to be offended, you always succeed. Um, and besides which, these people have to justify their employments. I gather it's a nice little earner. So and it's, a, it's a freelance job, that, uh, and, it, and it's the publisher that generally gets the sensitivity readers, though I gather that there are now mainstream fiction writers, not just YA fiction writers, uh, who sometimes independently choose to subject their own manuscripts to sensitivity readers out of paranoia. In some ways, you can't blame them. Well, it's not just novels and fiction writers that have fallen fallen foul of this. We, we had someone write in a question to us specifically about comedians and how people have been caught out for, for jokes and shows. Are we in danger of losing our sense of humor? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It's, I, I, I'm very sympathetic with, uh, with comedians, and um, I mean, there, were, there was a, a comedian in the UK who was exposed the fact that he was subject at one of, one of the major universities. Um, in order to appear, he was asked to sign a promise that he wouldn't make fun of a whole list of groups. And of course, there was no one left to make fun of when you were <laughs> through at the West, um, aside from Brexit supporters. Uh, and he refused to sign it. And I, I admired that. And, you know, I think this is another area where it's the, it's, it's the comedians themselves that have to keep preserving their right to tell funny jokes, even about things that are a little risque in the terms of the time. Those are the jokes that are funny, after all. It's usually the ones that are a little dangerous that make you laugh the most. And, uh, you know, the comedians have to be brave and go ahead and make the jokes, and we have to be brave and be willing to laugh at them. But if you're required to sign a, a waiver or a conditions before you perform at a comedy gig or before you write a novel, do, aren't people going to have to do that just to perform their art? If you want to perform comedy, you have to do that. If you want to write a novel, if they refuse, then they're not going to get a comedy gig. They're not going to get published. Well, I mean, that's why this stuff is important. If it were just a matter of taste, I don't think it would matter. And, you know, we could all sort off to, you know, we could go to the club that has the comedians that we like, uh, that, that who are, you know, all the, all the jokes aren't strictly politically correct. It's not like that. Um, and that's, you know, that's why we're talking about this stuff, because it has implications for real people's lives, real people's livelihoods. There have been a lot of people who've been sacked over the various sensitivities that we're, we're, uh, we're, we've been alluding to. So yeah, it's not that simple to solve. So I don't, I don't want to get up, up here and, and, and be aphoristic and rah-rah, and if we're all brave, everything will be fine. It's not the case. And um, especially since a lot of the cravenness and um, conformity to uh, hard left opinion is located in um, people my age, ad administrators, people who have real power, who are terrified of, of, of uh, violating present sensibilities and um, want to appeal to the young and uh, don't want to get themselves into trouble. So they are the ones who are probably guiltier of enforcing this code of conduct than the young people that we are sometimes a little too merciless with. You know, the whole snowflake thing. It's, in the universities, the biggest problem is now located not in the students, but in the administrations. But as you, as you said in your remarks, you, you had a friend who works at like, um, Columbia, mm -hmm. and they said that it doesn't occur to their students not to view works in identity politics terms. Mm -hmm. So hasn't this gone all the way down through to younger generations, and they're going to be getting publishing jobs and, and working in those roles? Yeah, there is definitely a danger of its being perpetuated, uh, that, that, it, that it, this way of thinking gets handed down. 
I think it is being handed down. I mean, every, every year there's a new class in a university that graduates and it's replaced by another class and they're, they're still all in abundance being taught the same way of thinking. It's a very rigid way of thinking and it's a way of looking at the world that I find depressing. Um, you know, fundamentally, identity politics has a way of looking at uh, both the present and the past as exclusively a representation of uh, power relationships between groups. It's, it's that simple. And uh, it's also, it's, it's not only a way of looking at, at art and, and history uh, and present politics, uh, but also individual people which I find especially offensive um, because it flattens out everyone's identity into a group membership. And it's not the way I think about people. It's not the way I think about myself. It's not the, the way I think about um, character, which is crucial to my occupation. But you know, we're all concerned with character. This is not just some fiction writer jag. Uh, we're all concerned with our own characters and, and with the characters of people around us, and I would hope that uh, most of us don't uh, reduce ourselves and others to our race or, or um, to, to whether or not we're disabled or our gender. You know, I don't give a toss about my gender. I'm, I'm not even a very good feminist because being a woman is not especially important to me. Uh, and and I, I am interested in getting out of all the little boxes into which I was born. So, you know, I was born uh, American. No one asked me. Um, <laughs> I was born in the, uh, the American South, which is even weirder. And I immediately, you know, as soon as I came of age, I wanted to get out of there. Uh, obviously, I was born white and female. But for me, these are confinements. And, and I want to break free of them. Uh, I moved to Britain. I mean, I've lived most of my life outside the United States. So, I, you know, I concede I'm American. I have stopped trying to live it down. I accept <laughs> it. But I have tried to broaden myself, my sense of self, and my world. And to me, that's a natural impulse. And this this impulse to instead stuff yourself and other people into these little pigeonholes, these little boxes, into, you know, I, I just, I think it's impoverished. And I think it's an, it's an ugly way to view the world. And, and I oppose it with every bone in my body. On, on the point about how we now view and consume art, we had a, a, a question which I thought was fantastic, is do we need to reinstill, particularly in young people, a love of art and novels? And if so, mm. how do we do that? Well, I do think it is in, important to emphasize that art is not primarily about virtue. And that is completely lost on the current uh, generation. And it's frankly must be lost on a lot of their teachers as well. And I, am, I find it befuddling why 
people would go to art thinking that that's what it's for. And why would you go to art for moral instruction? Um, when I go, when I read a novel or or go watch a movie, it's not the same impulse as going to Sunday school. Actually, I have no impulse to go to Sunday school. <laughs> and I am, I, I really, I, I profoundly cannot understand why this, why people want art just to 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 lecture on on how to be good. You know, there's, a, there's actually a, a wonderful Nick Hornby novel called How to Be Good. Have any of you read it? It, it's, it takes the mickey out of the urge to virtue. It's about somebody who has decided that he's going to be good. And of course, then he, he becomes intolerable. <laughs> and I like that premise. It's a little mischievous. How do you wake people up and say, well, that's not what this, is, that's not what this stuff is about? And also, goodness is not that simple. If we're really talking about, you know, what it means to live a good life, what are, what is the right thing to do in a given situation, you know, in real life, goodness isn't obvious. It's not simple. It's not a matter of just walking around being against racism. I mean, how 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 to make a lot of determinations in your life how to put together a successful society, how to be a member of a successful society, how to be a member of a successful family. You know, it's not simple. And one of the things that art teaches you is that complexity. I don't know, if you really read great books or watch, you know, great movies, you get that. You get the, the pain of life, the difficulty of life, the contradictions of it. That's what art is for. Not this cookie cutter kind of, this is good and this is bad. It's, that's, it's boring, but it's also not real. It's not real life. You just described it as people going to art for morality. Is that possibly the reason behind the move to of cancel culture mm. in that if artists have transgressed in their personal life or in their work, then their work is scrubbed, erased from history. Well, I'm, I'm alarmed on uh, a number of fronts about this cancel culture stuff. Um, I did an essay for Harper's on this, uh, which basically said, okay, artists are not perfect. They can be caught out for various sins, maybe political, maybe sexual, but isn't it cruel and unusual punishment to rescind their life's work on top of preventing them from producing anything more? And that is the direction that we have been traveling. That increasingly when an artist uh, in any field has been discredited uh, then their work is withdrawn from the artistic art marketplace. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's, that it's fair to the creator, but uh, you know, perhaps even more importantly, it's not fair to the arts consumer. It is, I mean, I'm really annoyed that I still haven't been able to see Louis C.K.'s last movie. You know, it's never been put out because 
he can't keep his zipper up. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry he's an exhibitionist. I'd watch my back if he were in the room, but, um, but I want to see the movie. I think he's funny. And the same thing's happened to Woody Allen, and Woody Allen hasn't admitted to anything or been convicted of anything. There's no evidence. He's been thoroughly investigated by the police twice. There's no suggestion that there's anything to this story about his uh, daughter and, and having somehow assaulted her when she was seven. And yet, just because we're in a cultural moment that uh, we're supposed to believe women, you know, his, his career is very close to over. Uh, Amazon, Amazon uh, retracted uh, something like a two-movie deal and not, they're not put, I, I don't know that whether he's even able to continue to make films. This is crazy. And uh, again, you know, my ma main problem with Woody Allen is that his last movies haven't been very good. <laughs> but I'd rather criticism, criticize him on that level. And I, I just, I think this whole, uh, this whole tendency to eliminate people. It's very Soviet, you know? It, it, is, it, is, it is what they did in the Soviet Union. You, 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 were, you were sent to the gulag. Or, or you know, the, in, in Mao's China, lots of people were just disappeared. And in America during the Yes. Uh, so it's not, there's plenty of precedent for this stuff. And one of the problems is that the people who are uh, promoting this approach to disagreement or disapproval uh, are also ahistorical and do not know anything about Stalinism or Maoism, uh, don't know anything about the Khmer Rouge, don't even especially know anything about McCarthyism. And so they don't recognize what that impulse is and what historical implications the expression of that impulse has had in the past. Do you think there are any circumstances in which it, it would be justifiable to cancel an artist's work if they were convicted of a crime, for example? No, I don't think that's what we do when people commit crimes. Um, if someone commits a crime, a, a real crime, then we put them in jail. But we don't uh, bust into their house and and smash up their apple pie that they made last night because this is, you know, somehow the fruit of the poison tree or something and we can't, you know, we don't, we don't destroy everything they've ever made in their life that was good, even if they did something bad in jurisprudence. That's not the punishment. That, the, the, this artistic punishment uh, is without pre precedent aside from in that Soviet sense, that it's not what we do, it's not how we punish criminals. So no, I would not cancel anybody. Just on the issue of people not knowing history, in your novels you've, you've often, even, the, um, even though they're fiction, you always have an element of, of the non-fiction, of the realism, and a, a good question to illustrate this is, 
in the mandibles, you envision a, this is a question from an audience member, uh, you envision a world in a state of financial collapse. Given events in the US, is fiction going to become fact? Well, I'm a little worried about this impending uh, financial correction. Um, I mean, I, I wrote that novel because I, I was genuinely worried about the stability of uh, the world financial system given its degree of debt, and I'm specifically concerned with sovereign debt. Uh, we're in a, an era where Western governments in particular are, are under increasing pressure from uh, entitlement programs given you know, that we have the famously aging population, so that the pressure on uh, government budgets is only going to get worse. And yet we're starting from a <coughs> point of fantastic, mind-blowing sovereign debt. And I don't see where, where in all this that money gets paid back. I mean, we're just making it bigger and bigger. Nobody ever makes it smaller. Nobody, nobody ever says, well, this year, you know, let's save a little and pay down the debt. Nobody ever pays down the debt anymore. So I just don't see how that's sustainable. I don't see why there's not a certain a point at which uh, either nobody, everyone at once loses faith that that money is ever going to be returned or the central banks themselves announce that they're wiping the balance sheet. I, I actually had a conversation with an, an economist uh, at, uh, in, in Byron Bay at this, the Concilium conference just this last week, who said that he, he did expect that, uh, for example, the Federal Reserve is, is likely at some point simply to um, cancel the debt. And he didn't seem to think that that would have any, any, any effect on anything. I, I beg to differ. <laughs> so that, yeah, that really makes me anxious. And uh, it makes me anxious because I have a few assets. <laughs> because I'm getting older and I'm going to need those assets. And it also makes me anxious for the, uh, frankly, for the stability of civilization. And if you want to know how things go, when money falls apart, buy the mandibles. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Lionel Shriver and Monica.